You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 3rd of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, what are Europeans, at least according to a new global survey, so miserable about? My guests Chiara Ramella, Carlotta Rabello, and Ben Ryland, two of whom are in fact Europeans, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including where the unholy alliance between Italy and Hungary's swivel-eyed populist parties might be heading, the nominations for this year's Tony Awards, and how long would you be willing to queue to use a solid gold toilet. That's all to come on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Chiara Ramella, Carlotta Ribello, and Ben Ryland. Welcome all. Uh, now, it is an ironclad rule of life that those with least to complain about do most of the complaining, and it has been reinforced by a survey by the YouGov Cambridge Globalism Project, which has discovered that ranking high among the world's gloomiest peoples are those of Europe. Citizens, that is, of a bastion of security, prosperity, democracy, and peace, rarely rivaled in all of human history. Among EU nations, surveyed, the French were noticeably miserable, just 27% of them expressing optimism about their futures. By way of instructive contrast, 81% of Chinese people surveyed expressed optimism, as did 73% of Indians and 71% of Indonesians. Um, Carlotta and Chiara, our two Europeans at the table, what's wrong? I mean, I guess uh, it's exactly what you just pointed out, because we know that we might lose that security, peace and prosperity any time. Uh, we just leave, live in fear uh, of uh, the anticipation of uh, our demise. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think I, I speak from an Italian point of view. I think the conversation and the general narrative in, in Italy has been largely pessimistic, at least since the global financial crisis. But even before that, I I think there there is it's a bit of a radicated approach to to things over the last 20 years or so, I would say. And there is obviously a point to be made about the fact that obviously when you are in a context of prosperity and you do see other um, nations have more of a progression and, and I guess an upwards curve, uh, you realise how static you are and wonder whether you should also be progressing and why you're not. Uh, ben, I'm, I'm not sure where our fellow Australians uh, figure on this curve of whether people are optimistic or pessimistic or not. Do, do you think we are noticeably one or the other of those things? Australians generally, yes, optimistic, for sure. Yeah, I think um, so as I, well. Especially compared to, I think, the general mood that I find here in Europe. Uh, but that comes with some caveats. I do think that if you were to speak to the younger generation, a lot of them would be quite concerned about the complete political inaction on on issues such as climate change. And that is quite a depressing thing in itself. And if you were to talk to younger people here in Britain, climate change would possibly be eclipsed or perhaps somewhere in there up to uh, up next to Brexit as well. When you see a lack of political leadership, that I think does seep into the national consciousness and 
makes people feel as if they are living at a moment in history where they are powerless to make anything happen for the betterment of of the people around them. Um, but I would have to say that speaking from an Australian perspective, uh, I think younger people are generally better at optimism. There is this feeling that we can make the change if we just keep on trying hard enough. We have the time ahead of us. And hopefully, hopefully that's true. It's funny that you mentioned there um, young people and uh, how they tend to uh, have a more optimistic view. When I look back at Portugal, it's a lot of what Chiara mentioned, you know, like the financial crisis had a bit hit in the morale of the country. And for a couple of decades, uh, no one was optimistic about anything, uh, be it uh, younger or older generations. Uh, you know, uh, when I decided to uh, move from Portugal, it was exactly because there was no prospect of me ever getting a job uh, within something I would like to do and not something that I just had to do for to pay the bills. And as I did, a lot of people left the country. But over the past couple of years, you have seen this change in mentality and actually thinking, you know, things are better in Portugal. It started that optimism with younger generations has started to appear. Uh, and a lot of people went back and have now moved back to Portugal and are trying, you know, uh, is that kind of worldview in a way of, okay, let's have an, a, a better approach to this and we can help our country get to a better place. Uh, but you'll still find the narrative uh, very much uh, back at home of you'll have um, young entrepreneurs um, and uh, business owners trying to push for the country to move forward in a positive way and finding the bureaucratic old barriers of essentially people not believing that it's even possible, uh, if that makes sense. Portugal, as we've discussed before, is, is unusual in Europe at the moment in that there hasn't been significant inroads made into its politics by far-right populist headbanger parties, a, a key part of whose appeal, uh, Chiara, is always nostalgia that things are getting worse, that there was this always ill-defined prelapsarian golden age before it all went wrong or before it all went too far. Um, is there, do you think, a, a significant overlap between gloominess of peoples and susceptibility to populism? Definitely, although uh, coming from an Italian standpoint, I, I wonder if the populism that's on the rise quite so starkly at the moment in my country is linked um, quite so directly with that sentiment of nostalgia that characterizes some uh, parties such as UKIP, for example, mm. or, or for example, Make America Great Again as a slogan. Um, I think a, a degree of pessimism engenders um, the, at least the flame, the initial spark for populism. And I think populism obviously stokes that fire. And then the two end up kind of sustaining each other until it, something tips tips over. Um, but, I, but I think that if, at least in the in Italian context, um, it's, it's really quite strange because I feel like um, the... The, the populist forces at play at the moment um, do present themselves as a force of change for the future and as self-made parties a lot more than the ones that uh, are taking hold elsewhere, where they're presenting themselves against what they perceive to be a pessimistic past. I think, I, I guess, the pessimistic narrative has been going on in Italy for a bit longer and, and, and earlier than the most recent wave of, of kind of rise of populism, perhaps. 
Okay, well, let's move along uh, slightly, because if you were looking for reasons to be pessimistic about the future of Europe, ample are being provided by the increasing closeness of Italian interior minister, minister indeed, Matteo Salvini, and Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who are believed to be contemplating the idea of establishing a formal alliance between Conservatives and the far right in the European Parliament following this month's elections. Uh, Orban has already issued a call for the European People's Party to go into business with Salvini's allies despite or because of the fact that the EPP has suspended the membership of Orbán's Fidesz party. Um, ben, is, it, is this going anywhere? Is it, is it, I'm going to try to be optimistic here myself, uh, is it possible we have reached a peak of headbanging nativist populism in Europe? As Because often what, very often what happens um, with extremist parties, and we've seen various cycles of this here in the UK, when you, the BNP were briefly a thing and then they actually started getting elected to things and the U, and then UKIP were very a, a big thing and then started getting elected to things. And the trouble is when they actually get elected to things and have to get stuff done, it turns out they're completely hopeless and everybody gives up on them. Are, 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 we, are we possibly approaching that point in the cycle? Possibly. Uh, I wouldn't be too optimistic about whether we are approaching the end of anything. But, you know, as Barack Obama said not too long ago, history doesn't always move in straight lines. It goes backwards and forwards and sideways and all over the place. So, you know, this this could be one of those moments where we don't know where exactly it's it's moving. But... Alliances are fairly tricky, and especially when you're talking about pan-European alliances, uh, that sounds very, very messy to me. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be betting any money on this awkward, strange marriage actually running the test of time at all. Uh, because when you, as you, as you suggest, you know, you've got the campaigning season, and that's one thing. But when once you've actually been elected and you actually have to do something and you have to agree on these real meaningful changes, that's when the tricky business comes in. And so far from what we've seen, most of these far-right and conservative parties don't seem to be very good at really sticking to the politics of it, because politics is a game of compromise. The far-right is demonstrably not capable of compromise at all. It's not their long suit. Chiara, is there something basically weird about this idea of a transnational uh, alliance being formed by parties whose really only common point is that none of them like foreigners uh, and therefore you would think each other? It's quite it's quite hypocritical, I think, when you think about the fact that um, Salvini is praised among these parties, really the leaders of these parties, because of his very tough stance on immigration. But ultimately, Salvini's own stance on immigration has put him at loggerheads with with France, for example, and and has put him in awkward situations where um, his decision not to allow. Um, ships to dock at ports in Italy has meant that these ships have had to be rerouted elsewhere, and and for him to hope that perhaps France would uh, would welcome the ships instead. So. Uh, Supporting each other's hard line is only going to make them eventually uh, come at heads with one another at some point. Carlotta, there is part of me that, that quite, like, quite likes this idea in the way that I quite like that idea of that, that massive far-right summit which was supposed to have occurred in, in <laughs> Milan a while ago, that the, when you put these people into close proximity with each other, uh, it just surely magnifies the likelihood of them all having a massive falling out over some absolutely arcane point of dogma that nobody sane cares about and the whole movement atomizing, doesn't it? Are we making comparisons to the latest US-North Korea summit? Not, <laughs> not, not yet. Not entirely. <laughs> no, but um, uh, I do believe that when you get 
all of them together, you have a likelihood of, you know, uh, it's a lot of egos at force with each other and battling each other. And that is a trait of uh, any far right or populist ideology. But I think what is important to remember here, especially ahead of the European elections, is if even this alliance is as successful as they hope it would be, which they would never get a majority, but if they have a significant amount of seats in the parliament, at most, at the European parliament, at most what they will be able to accomplish is just to have a say um, in the appointments to the European Commission. They won't be able to influence policy that goes through the European Parliament. Uh, they w- will have a significant say in European Commission, uh, but that is it. Um, now, is it a good thing that they're entering the European Parliament? Probably not. Uh, but is it a case that actually having these voices represented then is one less thing for them to complain that these voices are not heard? I think it's important to note that um, alliances have worked a lot in politics in the past, and you can you can look at a lot of different countries around the world and, and pick up on alliances there that that really have turned out to be credible governing uh, parties at, at some point. The Liberal National Coalition in Australia is obviously an example. Uh, the Liberal Party uh, has been in coalition with the National Party for for many many years and has governed the country on many occasions uh, quite quite uh, sufficiently. Uh, But that, I think, is something that belongs to another period in time. I'm not quite sure whether that sort of partnership would be able to be struck in in today's age. And I don't know, I can't put my finger on what exactly has changed, but it does feel like something significant in politics generally has changed, which makes the art of the coalition so much more difficult and and, and such a a goal that's always shifting, shifting its place. And I don't know what it is that's changed, but it does feel as if politics, broadly speaking, has become a lot more ill than it used to be decades ago. Well, on the subject of things in politics changing, uh, we are, of course, faced with the ludicrous prospect of EU elections being held here in the UK in a few weeks, nearly three years after the UK voted to leave the EU. By way of, I guess, a curtain raise, we've had local elections in quite a lot of England and Northern Ireland yesterday, the results emerging today. Um, Chiara, it, it has been an absolute massacre for the just about governing Conservative Party who have lost uh, a thousand councillors. Uh, It hasn't been good for Labour either. Uh, Are we sort of learning that another large scale desertion of traditional parties is underway? Possibly. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people have interpreted the UK's opportunity to take part into the uh, European elections as as a bit of a test as to whether a second referendum would even uh, kind of be plausible or whether it could be presented in its own way as a second referendum in itself. Um, And I think in this case, it would be very interesting for the lines of the UK parties to be redrawn so that those traditional parties that are, I guess, linked to their pre-Brexit debate or or their Brexit debate um, identities can shift and, and take new positions within the European context so that they can really become... I guess, vehicles of new positions of where the Brexit debate can move forward towards. Well, what I find quite uh, interesting is that uh, with uh, with these European elections being held here in the UK, it's probably one of the European elections in the United Kingdom that have been paid most attention to ever <laughs> since the UK has been part of the EU in kind of this ironic uh, 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 way. But that actually might be the best thing because the problem had been so far that because no one really cared about European elections in the United Kingdom, you would get 
mainly UKIP elected to represent the UK in the European Parliament. And because there was not this consciousness or awareness from the public about their rights within the EU and uh, um, their involvement even, uh, you wouldn't, the country wasn't properly represented. And even though this election might be uh, being used as a test to possible people's vote, etc., etc., it is good to actually see it being debated and considered uh, uh, in a proper way rather than just by people that love politics and are involved in it, um, which used to be what happened before. Compulsory but, voting, Andrew, that's the answer. You know it is. You know I, I, I couldn't possibly agree more. It's what we do in Australia. Yes, the compulsory vote. Literally every other country in the world listen to us. You should do it. Uh, anyway, on that uh, note, we shall take a short break. We are listening. You are we are listening. Well, so are you. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Miller, Carlotta Rebello, Ben Ryland, and Chiara Ramella. Coming up next, another one of those things where people who get applauded for a living hold a big event at which they get applauded more. How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com slash shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Miller. Still with me are Chiara Ramella, Ben Ryland and Carlotta Ribello. And to the world of theatre now, which will be agog at the revelation of the nominees for this year's Tony Awards, which will be presented to the Best of Broadway for the 73rd time next month. The show appears set to be stolen by Town, which received 14 nominations despite being a musical. Also doing well where the 12 times nominated Temptations jukebox thing ain't too proud. A musical version of Tootsie, honestly. Plus Aaron Sorkin's adaptation of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, ben, first of all, a musical version of Tootsie. Literally, what is wrong with it? What is wrong with people? <sighs> Andrew, you've used that musical joke more times than To Kill a Mockingbird as you brought <laughs> <laughs> uh, No, look, I have well, I to... Can, s- I can only point out, however, that To Kill a Mockingbird has been nominated for several Tony Awards. Uh, it, it's it's in, indeed so true. My, my, my joke about musicals will have its day. <laughs> look, I have to say, I am very pleased with the Tony nominations this year. Most of all, though, I am pleased that so many older people are up for awards. And that's what I find so interesting about the Tony Awards, because if you compare the people that do well, that seem to hit their prime, the prime of their career uh, on Broadway, it seems that the average age is considerably older to any other form of show business. You don't see these sorts people of this age generally hitting their prime at the Oscars or at the Emmys or at the Golden Globes. You know, it's just, it seems to be something specific about the theatre that says, yes, Sally Field, you are indeed having your own golden age right now, despite the fact that you are in your 70s. The same is true about Annette Bening, who is up for Best Actress uh, for um, in a play because she's starring in All My Sons on Broadway right now. I just happened to see Sally Field in that very same role just the other night. Uh, and it's... 
I that is such a reassuring thing to me because we get so much discussion of women particularly hitting a certain age and all of a sudden the roles dry up no one's willing to give these amazingly talented people a role anymore and it's it's deeply deeply depressing so to go along and see a powerhouse performance uh, of someone on Broadway it's it is deeply re- reassuring. I remember once, some time ago, listening to something that Beatrice Arthur, the great B. Arthur, said about performing, and uh, she said it during her show that the biggest regret, one of the biggest regrets professionally she ever had, was not being able to play Mama Rose in a production of Gypsy, and that I think is quite quite poignant because that role, Mama Rose in Gypsy, that is the role that every other actress on Broadway in the world wants to play. And that role has to be played by someone who is older. That, I think, just says everything about what what theatre is. I I did want to gauge the response of the table to the success in terms of garnering nominations of Ain't Too Proud, which is a a jukebox musical based on the works of The Temptations. I have literally nothing against the works of The Temptations, who made some fabulous records. Actually, they made lots of fabulous records. I am, however, baffled by the jukebox musical as an idea. Has anybody here at the table voluntarily seen one or would you without a gun at your head? Yeah, I would. Yeah, really? Yeah. One. I mean, everything's an experience. <laughs> well, that is, that, is, that is one way of putting it. I saw it. a jukebox musical all about the life of Dusty Springfield. It was absolutely fantastic. The wonderful Australian actress Tamsin Carroll in the leading role, she did a brilliant job. And anybody else? Kiara, are you a regular attendee of the Jukebox Musical? I've kept relatively quiet because I didn't want to disappoint my fellow <laughs> panellists here. I, am, I don't have a particular inclination for musicals. However, I'm Closing must admit, my laptop right now. Yes. <laughs> However, I must admit, it's probably a preconception because, in fairness, not theatre musicals, those I haven't really quite managed to break the barrier. But on-screen musicals, when I have watched them, I... I have reluctantly enjoyed them eventually. (laughs) There's a quote for the posters. I reluctantly enjoyed this eventually. Chiara Ramiller, Monocle. For me, it's the other way around. I hate, like, TV films that are musicals. If it's a musical, it has to be in theatre. Otherwise, it's just a bit too much. This is controversial. Yeah, I know. Uh, But I, I just, like... I, I just stop midway and, and like the when I'm watching at home or whatever, like I would never buy a cinema ticket for a musical, but I would buy to go to the theatre and what see it. What about The Wizard of Oz? Nah, Ben, sorry. Can, can, can we have an adjudication here, Ben? Our musical... Is a musical better in the theatre or in cinema? It's generally better in the theatre because that See? is the... It, that's the natural habitat. <laughs> I told you. That's the natural habitat. Exactly. But that doesn't mean that there are the, no the, good the listeners, musical the movies. Listeners cannot, like the listeners cannot see Kiara hurling her chair over and storming <laughs> out of the studio. It's just much harder to make a very good musical for the screen. Uh, it, it, they can be a little bit creaky when they're not done well, but when they're done well, they are some of the finest filmmaking you're ever likely to see. And it's, it's, a, it's the finest... Some of the finest art form I should say there's just something quite magical when you're in theatre and you can actually you know the voices are live everything is happening live if it's a storyline that you actually know or might know the songs if there's a stumble etc you can pick that up and see how actors and the audience reacts and I think that for me is what makes theatre so great is the interaction between you know the public and those on stage Especially with musicals, I would not make myself go through it at home. No. See, <laughs> among my among my very real concerns about going to see a musical, uh, either at the theatre to a perhaps lesser extent at the cinema, would be the worry that 
the rest of the audience would sing along. No, that no, never, that ever never happens. happens. Never happens. No, I can tell you right now, when I the, the very best experience I ever had in the theatre was to see Ibelda Staunton playing Mama Rose in Gypsy, quite recently here in London. That was absolutely incredible. And in the climax of the show, there is a moment where there's complete silence. The lead character is having essentially a nervous breakdown during a, a musical number. And... What I found so astonishing was at that moment, there was no shifting in the chairs. There was no sneezing, no coughing, no no, no noise whatsoever. Imelda Staunton had captured every soul in that theatre within her performance and she could do whatever she wanted and we were going to go along with her. OK, well, I, I regret to inform you all that I'm now going to lower the tone of the programme by several fathoms because finally tonight, the news that Blenheim Palace will shortly take delivery of a solid gold toilet might prompt the response that it seems more like news that Blenheim Palace, seat of the Dukes of Marlborough and childhood home of Winston Churchill, didn't already have one. But it didn't, it turns out, and now it will. It is a sculpture by Maurizio Catalan. It has previously been exhibited at the Guggenheim in New York City where people queued up for two hours to use it an entirely sensible of allocation of time in a place where there's famously so little else to do. Um, I, I have nothing against Blenheim Palace. I've been, I played cricket there once. Did you, Andrew? I, I did. did you play cricket <laughs> I did play cricket at Blenheim Palace once, took, took three wickets for 20. It was a, it was, it was a good day. Um, but will any of us be making the trip to Blenheim Palace, which is in and of itself worth seeing, uh, to see and indeed use a fully operational solid gold toilet? Uh, no. No, I'm more worried about the queues, to be honest, because what's quite interesting is that I've, I've read um, into this and they're going to be enhanced in security, obviously, but because they're going to allow people to go in and effectively use the facilities... Um, there is no real way, I guess, of making sure that everybody is going to be using the facilities for a, for an allocated time. So um, I've read a quote saying, you know, we'd like people to enjoy their time in there without giving them too much time, if that makes sense. You See, know? it makes none. You you have researched this, uh, Chiara, vastly more than I wanted to. Um, what, what, what else have you learned? Well, another thing that I was compelled to do, because this, this sculpture has obviously been exhibited before... Um, my first thought was, surely somebody must have taken a self-portrait uh, in front of this work of art. You know, nobody has has gone to the Yayo Kusama exhibition without taking a picture. So surely somebody must have done on there too. And um, if you Google it, the answer is yes. Yes, they have. And I, then they've published mm, them online yep, and yep. they are visible on the worldwide web. <sighs> God. Um, as, as, as a work of art, how impressed or otherwise are we by this? I don't care. I <laughs> oh, honestly, on. honestly, I'm, I'm with Ben on this yeah, one. I, I, I get I, what they I were trying to say. Either. Possibly I, unusually, Ben, we are in complete agreement. <laughs> I get what they were trying to say. It's a metaphor, I know, but it's it's like dusting with a sledgehammer. It is really quite an obvious <laughs> that metaphor. That actually sounds it? like a lot of fun, though. In, 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 in fairness, um, it, it's it's yeah, it's it's an obvious statement of gaucherie, and it is a cue for me. I've, I've possibly told this story for similar reasons before, but I, I have actually set put in what wasn't technically a solid gold bathroom, but a gold bathroom, or at least a, at least a bathroom with uh, significant gold highlights, which was Saddam Hussein's bathroom in his his palace in Basra. Um, this was in about 2005, by which time the palace had been repurposed as a British military base. Uh, it was incredibly tacky and unpleasant, you'll be astonished to learn, and the facilities were not by that point uh, working. And basically the point of me telling the story is to be able to quote once again the, the Welsh guardsman 
who showed me round because that was the unit I was embedded with. Uh, and I made some reference to how gauche and tacky the whole thing was. And he did, and it's funnier in a Welsh accent, which I can't do, but he did reply, yes, I know. It's like someone in Merthyr Tidfils won the lottery. <laughs> which is which which is exactly what it looked like with all due respect to our many listeners and in Methotidville. I guess the important question here is uh, did you take a self portrait? <laughs> I, 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 I did I, I did I did take a picture I, I think I, I've got a picture somewhere possibly of the soldiers who were showing us around in the bathroom but but no I, I don't think. I'm in it. I'm, <laughs> I think I, I'm not. I'm not actually sure. To be honest, you have raised an interesting point, though, Andrew. In that my <laughs> immediate <laughs> my immediate disgust with this was that oh, it's so obviously ugly. But at the same time, as the point was made when this was offered to Donald Trump to take on loan, some people actually do look at this stuff and think, oh yes, that's great. I'd like one of them in my house because if I have a golden toilet, people will think I'm very, very rich and very, very distinguished and important. Some people legitimately do think like that. So maybe, maybe this is a good reminder that not everyone is so enlightened to know that a gold toilet is absolutely hideous. I, I mean, it is obviously, uh, as you pointed out earlier, a, a, a fairly sledgehammer commentary on materialism and the acquisition of objects as as status symbols. But yeah, it does seem weird to think that they're probably... There's, there's almost certainly somebody in the world somewhere thinking, cool. Also, it's like yeah. public toilets... I think toil- he's in the White House, actually. <laughs> <laughs> public toilets are as horrible as they they are, why would you want to use a facility that literally has been used by like <laughs> thousands and thousands of people just for the sake of it because oh. it's gold? Mm. It, like, I just don't get it. I bet the queues for the actual like ba- uh, bathrooms in the palace will be much shorter. <laughs> that That is actually a good point. That's and the golden line you. of this story. That is a really good point. It took us half an hour to come up with one, but we got one, which is that while this thing is being exhibited at Blenheim Palace, that will be an excellent time to visit Blenheim Palace because there won't be a queue for the normal bathrooms. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. It really is worth seeing. Uh, Chia- Blenheim Palace, that is not the other thing. Chiara Ramella, Carlotta Rabello, and Ben Ryland, thank you for joining us. The show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's Marcus Hippie with the menu. There'll be more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Enjoy your weekend. <laughs>